Hello, Anastasia. It's lovely to see you again. It's nice to see you too. Look at us introducing ourselves in the beginning and not halfway or a quarter way through the podcast. Yes. Hello, we are tennis fans. <laughs> we are. We are tennis fans. And thank you to all five people or more, who knows, who listened to um, episode one of Ground Pass. That was, oh, we have a name. We are Ground We had a Pass. name pretty much as soon as we recorded, let's be honest. We are more organized than we think we give the impression for. Like Anastasia runs a military operation here. I have notes, lots of notes. But um, yeah, it's been great. Um, I sort of share the podcast with a bunch of friends and they really did enjoy it. So that was good. Um, and the feedback has been great so far. So we're just going to keep going and see see if Coca-Cola calls us or maybe Nike or something. <laughs> I'm making a face for podcast listeners. Realizing, of course, this is, going, this is not going on video form. But um, yeah, sure. Why not? They'll, they'll, like, let's hope for it. But like, I, I've said this to you before, Anastasia. I would definitely keep recording this for five people who listen who if it's five people five people who like listening to us who want to chat with us and want to learn about tennis and you know you know it's like you know if you want to get into a sport you want to have that friendly person next to you who's explaining it to you and I'm happy to record myself being that friendly person in in sort of you know we're trying things out seeing what the format's going to be like for this podcast I think because we are targeting new fans of tennis or maybe not so new casual fans who just watch the occasional uh, match here and there we want to at, at the beginning of every podcast sort of have a tennis theme that we talk about for this episode episode two we're gonna talk about tennis tournaments yes so there's a few so please bear with us we mentioned it in the uh, episode one that there are different types and we thought well since we've talked about it quite a lot let's dig into it and like try and break it down for those who may be less familiar with the the structure of the tennis tour and yeah let's see how that goes so hopefully you can you can follow along most people listening uh will be familiar with the biggest tennis tournament in their country which I would imagine, given these early stages, is going to be either the US or the UK. Uh, yeah, the UK, it would be Wimbledon, US Open in um, in the US. Although having said that, for some people, they probably only watch Wimbledon even in the US. This is true. This is true. And so you've jumped right in here to what that the biggest sort of tournaments tournament is and the biggest tournament that any sort of casual fan knows. If you've never watched tennis or if you've heard of tennis... You've heard of a Grand Slam. You might not have known that's what it was called, but it's a Grand Slam. And there are four of them. What are the four Grand Slams? So there are four Grand Slams. Um, There is the Australian Open, which is in Melbourne. um, And that's held, um, I can't remember what the, the the, uh, Melbourne Park, Melbourne Park is is the place. And that's in January. So during the Australian summer. Then there's um, uh, Roland Garros, or otherwise known as the French Open. um, And that is held um, in Paris at Roland Garros. That's the name of the facility. Um, And then you've got Wimbledon which we've mentioned a couple of times already, that's in London. Um, the official name for Wimbledon is the Championships. That's it. Maybe you'd call it the British Championships if you're out of the country, but like the official tournament name is like 
the championships technically although it's it, and it's marketed as Wimbledon let's be honest and then you've got finally the US Open which uh, is held in New York in Flushing Meadows near Queens those are your four majors and they are kind of four of the oldest surviving tennis tournaments um, the reason why they're most important is they are historically the ones everyone's wanted to win for as long as tennis has been a competitive sport you're going going way back I mean I'm not going to dive too deep into the history side of things right now we can do that another day but tennis my tennis brain's full of all the history but yeah you've got these four and um basically there's 128 players in the draw winner has to win seven matches which is more than any other tournament um so not only are they bigger in terms of prestige and history but they're also literally bigger in terms of draw size in terms of players taking part the money that they can win um, and the length of tournament, you know, two full weeks of tennis. In fact, actually two of the events go on for 15 days. If if you want to start with tennis, those are the easiest ins for you. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the easiest way to describe it, you know, for for other fans. So if you're, you know, an American football fan, it's like, it's the Super Bowl. If you're, you know, a soccer fan, it's the World Cup. We just, tennis just happens to have four of them. It's the And biggest... every year. Can you imagine what the NFL would be like if you had four Super Bowls a year? I'm sure people would love it. Mostly because they watch the Super Bowl for the performances. So it's just a big concert with football in between, you know? <laughs> so they would, they would take four concerts a year. But yeah, so it, the, the Grand Slams are the largest championships, tournaments of, um, for tennis. Um, but that's not it. Obviously, no. most tennis um, athletes are aiming for the Grand Slam. That's the big kahuna. That's what they want to watch. Uh, sorry, not watch. That's what they want to play. That's where they want to be. That's where they want to win. That's the one they want to win. It's also the hardest to win. But throughout the year, in between the Grand Slams, because there are four Grand Slams spread across the year, there are other tournaments Um, that are run by the tours. And I think something to point out here, because it might be confusing for some people when they do compare slams to other tournaments, is the Grand Slams are not run by the tennis tours. No, they're not. And again, that's due to a lot of history of how the sport became professional. Um, There was a, there's a, without going too much into detail, um, there was a lot of resistance to tennis players turning professional up until about 50, like over 50 years ago, like 68 was when professionals were allowed to play in the Grand Slams or majors as they're otherwise known, a bit like in golf. Um, uh, so what happened was these kind of separate prof- organizations, organized professional tours kind of arose in amidst all the crazy tennis politics of trying to run the sport in the late 60s, early 70s, which meant that the Grand Slams are, they kind of run themselves, but they also work with the ITF, the International Tennis Federation. But the tours organize all the other professional events, or almost all the other professional events. And those are, as we explained last time, the ATP and the WTA. The ATP do the men's tour, the WTA do the women's tour. The way they do it is they have tournaments pretty much throughout the year, first week of January in the new year, right up until October, November time. And then there's a few weeks off during the winter months in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, but the, uh, yeah, but the, the tournaments kind of structure, um, kind of give the tournaments, the, the tours give different tournaments different levels of worth um, in terms of money and in terms of ranking points, which we'll explain another time. But all we, um, all you need to know is that, like, yeah, they're tournaments about the year, but they are, they are staggered differently and have different levels of prestige or worth, depending on it. But 
still not as worth as much as winning a major or a Grand Slam. Right, right. And the easiest way to sort of show the differences in worth and how big they are are literally by their names. So um, the other tournaments are named according to how many ranking points you can win by winning the tournament. And we've got the Masters 1000, we've got 500s, and we've got 250s. Those are sort of the major groups the three major groups in which tournaments throughout the year are filtered through. So you you have, I think right now there are nine Masters 1000s and then it just increases from there. So you have a whole bunch of 500 level tournaments and you also have a whole bunch of 250 level tournaments as well. Although as of 2024, the women's tour is going to go up to 10 Masters 1000 tournaments. Yeah, pretty much as it is, as we said. So Essentially, you're looking at kind of throughout the year, kind of the biggest prizes guaranteeing to have the biggest, uh, the, the biggest players, the, the highest ranked players uh, are going to be at these 1000s as well as at the Grand Slams. Um, so you're talking about 13, yeah. 14 tournaments where those names are going to show up because the 1000 events are also pretty big. They, they're like, can be 56 or even 96 player draws. Yeah. And it, it's kind of... Isn't that, you know, I think we are right now, are, we're in an inflection point a little bit. Like, just like Nick was saying, next next year, the WTA is going to have an extra Masters 1000. And that's because the tours, they run these events and they want them to be almost as big and prestigious as the Grand Slams, which they do not run. So something that you can expect to see that started this year and is going to continue on into 2024, 2025 is these Masters 1000s are going to become the easiest way for me to describe it are mini slams. You know, they usually, usually a tournament goes on for a week. Um, That's the general length of a tournament. But now the Masters 1000s are going to be two-week events, just like Grand Slams. Yeah, um, or not, yeah and they'll phase through into that, like, two-week-long events. We can talk about, I, I don't want to get too deep into sort of the politics behind it or the opinions on it, because, you know, then we get really into deep tennis fan chat. Um, it's not universally yeah. <laughs> popular, I will say that. They are, there is an element of wanting tennis to be on the map uh, outside of just four times a year. Um, and so it's like, oh, hey, yeah. I want to watch Coco Goff play again. I want to watch Novak Djokovic or Carlos Alcaraz play again. You know, then you're going to go, well, where are they playing? And you're more likely to find those bigger tournaments. Um, you're kind of like, OK, I'm pretty much guaranteed to watch that. Like, watch it. Like, someone I know is going to definitely be there right. and they can market it a lot easier. That's kind of the logic for it. But obviously, I think the old system was it was a lot with, with cramming a 1000 into a week. Um, obviously there was a lot of tennis, a lot of potential to miss tennis. So by spreading the tennis out, it's kind of, you've got more of a chance of catching someone maybe. Um, but yeah, and, and also there's an element of competition as well. Like the, the tours don't necessarily like, yeah, the, tennis politics is very much a power struggle between lots of different people. Um, and the, the tours are probably trying to find ways to get themselves on the map as much as the slams. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there are two other groups that I want to talk about before we move on to sort of the tennis and what's been happening um, this week. And I do think they're they're important in their own right and almost could be a window into the future of the tours. The first one I would like to talk about are just challengers. Um, they're known as challengers 
in the ATP level and in the WTA level, they're one, they're known as um, one two yeah one hundred twenty five k one two five one two five. 125k yes 125k and but then they also have 70ks and they have you know lesser tournaments so these are basically two tournaments or levels of they're two tournament levels for players who are below sort of i think the 200 level you would say it it varies a lot so um i would say typically in a sort of a challenger or 125k you are looking at generally outside the top 100 top 100 ranked players are generally the ones who are week in, week out on the main tour. Not always, like I'd say maybe like a few people in the lower end of the top 100 will probably um, enter challenger levels and try and like be a bigger bigger name in that field. And I'm going to call it challenges because yeah. 125k is a bit of a mouthful, which is called that because that's the total prize pot available for the whole for the whole field um but yeah typically top 100 um for the, like the high level challenges obviously you drop further down maybe outside the top 200 but there are at, uh, there is actually a level below challenger in 125k um which is run by the itf they're called futures and um, there's different levels in that and actually the challenger tour is probably uh, for the guy for the men is probably where the big breakouts come through they don't have as many futures events they're much more uh, they're, they're not worth as much. Whereas the, for the women, it's very much all futures events all the way up until 125K, which is like an elite group that sort of yeah. is a stepping stone between them and the main tour. Yeah, I don't want to get too deep into the tennis iceberg on this. No, no, no. But I wanted to bring it up because it's where players who are outside of the top 100 can kind of build up ranking points, which we will talk about in a future episode to get into the top 100 and grow further. So, or, you know, I think for a lot of fans who maybe saw Andy Murray playing a bunch of challengers this year, it's where maybe a player who's on the mend or coming back from injury or, um, you know, mostly coming back from injury or some sort of time off, maybe in order to get some ranking points, they'll go play challengers because it might be an easier win for them. I know Dominic Team right now, who's coming back from injury, is playing a lot of challengers um, in order to do that. So it's a tool that some, you know, high-level players can use to bump up their ranking a bit. But as you say before, it's also where the future of tennis is forged. Um, you know, most... yes. Up-and-coming players have to... Every up-and-coming player has to make their way through that tour unless they do an Emma Raducanu and wins the US Open on their first attempt. Not everyone can be Emma. No, not everyone can be Emma. Um, we will both say that. Um, but the... Uh, yeah, so I, obviously that's also the place if you want to watch the, the younger generation, the next gen, who might be good there. Because the reality is, maybe with Challenger Tennis, if you watch it, it's not going to be the highest quality. I will say that you're not going to be watching the very, very, very best in the world, the tip of the mountain, the 1% taking part, but you are going to be watching competitive matches. They are, everyone on that tour is very evenly matched. And it's also more likely to be a local tournament for you that you could check out. And the tickets will not be that expensive. That's true. Exactly. It might be a good entryway. Mm. Yeah, always check it out. Like I've, uh, you know, there's a couple of tournaments like locally to me that I've gone. Oh, I could, I could go to that. I've not actually got round to it yet. But you know, it's I, not everything in the UK is based around London, so it's nice to know that uh, I could probably go to somewhere like a, um, like a challenger event going on in a small British town somewhere that um, you don't realise. Um, but yeah, so right. definitely check them out if you have a look. Local tennis tournaments you might be surprised. Great way to see some live tennis if you have some around you, for sure. 
Um, and then the last section or the last group of events that I would love to talk about because I think it does sort of give an insight of where tennis hopefully might be going are group events. Mm. I think the most popular group event or team event that most people might know is Davis Cup because Davis Cup has been around forever and it's where tennis players get to do something that they don't really get to do other than the Olympics maybe, which is play for their country. But also a big part of it is playing on a team, which tennis, as most people know, if you're not playing doubles, is a very individual sport. So playing in a group event and a team event is not something that tennis players usually get to do. So Davis Cup has been an event where you have a group of players all playing for their country that has sort of, um, it gives the tennis fans something different, a little bit. The energy at Davis Cup is a little different. And on the women's side, they have what is the Billie Jean King Cup, which is basically the female version of, of Davis Cup. So these are a couple of group events that have existed for a long time. And now there are a couple of new events that have been added to the group calendar. Very new. I think the United Cup is only going to be in its second run, right? Yeah, so United Cup um, is actually in the first week of January. It starts then, like, it's uh, uh, it's kind of marketing itself as the opening to the tennis calendar in many ways. And it is, unlike the other two events we've talked about, worth ranking points. But it's also a united male-female team. So you've got um, each country will have a, a men's player, a women's player, and they'll play doubles as well. No, like that's that's Hotman Cup. Anyway, um, but like there's a few, I think they've just changed the rules on United Cup, so I'm struggling to follow it. Um, yes, they um, do. So United Cup is basically that, um, and it is taking the place of the Hotman Cup, which was run at a similar point during the year, but wasn't necessarily supported by the tours, whereas the United Cup is being run by as a combined effort by the tours. The Hopman Cup has been resurrected. It's kind of been put in the middle of the year and everyone forgets about it. But it's the same principle. It's both yes. men and women competing together for their country. But yeah, that's kind of the, the key difference. And obviously it's called the United Cup because it's got it's got both. And it, it's, again, that's it ended up getting created because... There was obviously, they saw a demand for it, like the men and the women playing on the same teams. It's going to draw all fans in. But also, it was probably, again, tennis politics, a way for the tours to kind of get in. Because for the Davis Cup and the Billie Jean King Cup, they're having to fight for space on the tennis calendar in amidst all the tours where everyone can actually get on and earn some points and money. Whereas they don't do that playing for um, their country and other um, in other events olympics is a different story they know the tennis players want to play at the olympics they're going to make space for that but that's that's kind of where we are with it there's a lot of events where players have the opportunity to play for their country Th- that could be an episode in itself to be honest mm-hmm. no totally the group events for sure and how they evolve and what it means for a possible merger between the atp and wta we could just write a book on that probably <laughs> Uh, yes, I mean... Um, but we're not going to. No, like, if we were going to write a book, we'd be doing that, but it's much more fun to do a podcast. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But so those that's pretty much the breakdown of tennis tournaments throughout the year. I know the, the first entry for most people are the Grand Slams and should be, but there's just so much tennis and so many opportunities to watch tennis and keep up with the tour and not just pop in four times a year because I think 
by following the tour and all the other tournaments, it kind of informs what comes up in the slams, you know? So if a player does badly in a slam, it usually is informed by how they were playing in the weeks before, which if you're just jumping in the four times a year, you're missing, I think, some important storytelling. And Or, you know, even with someone like Marketa Vondrosheva, who was a new Wimbledon champion, part of her story was told during the rest of the season where she was injured and she was coming back. And so her story is even a little bit more bigger and fun than just like, oh, you just turn up at Wimbledon and she's a new winner. There's a whole behind the scenes as well that I think almost makes the slam so much more interesting knowing the backstory. Yeah, and we know everyone wants to know the backstories, right? Like, there's so many people who want to know. Like, you go to, if, if you are a newer fan or you're, you only know certain names because you've only watched the US Open or Wimbledon or maybe you'll watch um, the four slams, the, reali- the reality is, is that you're not always going to know who the, who everyone is. You might get lucky and watch an early round match between two players who like say an Andy Murray versus Stan Wawrinka in round one, because that could happen. But you could also get um, something like uh, Matteo Berrettini versus Diego Schwartzman. And suddenly you're like, well, who are these guys? Now as hardcore tennis fans, we know who they are. Like they're big names to us. Yeah. Um, But you know, you get the sort of the sense of the stories and the journeys they've been going on day in day out throughout the year and so much of tennis is about the results and what they do um we now people do follow people for their personality we've talked a little bit about that on the podcast before like i'm not a fan of daniel medvedev's tennis style but i love his personality so that's so so that can happen again but then you get to know their personalities through watching them play and like see what they're like on court or in interviews afterwards so again maybe how you follow tennis week in week out that's a show topic we should probably do um which is probably gonna be difficult to do for an international audience but yeah if you want to go but even like hey i just finished watching the us open i want to watch more tennis like what's next what's next what's like yeah go find the talk Moving on, it has been quite a two weeks since we we last recorded on the tours. Um, A lot has happened. One thing I want to mention, because we're not really going to talk about it a lot, but I remember my player of the Fortnite um, last time we recorded was Yannick Sinner. And yes, he did. Yes, he did win Beijing. Yep, he did. (laughs) He added a 500 to his to his stack. Yeah. Now he has one of each, except for a Grand Slam. That's next. I'm yeah. I'm a Yannick Sinner believer. I think he I like. There's so many people who go, oh, but he's not like. Yeah, Yannick. I'm a Yannick Sinner believer. I think there's a slam coming. Me too. Me too. It's gonna take time, and I think that's what it's easy to forget. Sometimes they're so young. They're so young. I think Yannick Sinner is 22. Um, I think there's so much more years of tennis uh, left for him to play and chances for him to um, to win a Grand Slam. But yes, he was my player of the fortnight last episode, and he did win the title in Beijing, which will bring us to what happened this week, um, these past two weeks um, on the ATP Tour, which was a Masters 1000 in Shanghai. It was... Um, Master 1000, so it's right below a Grand Slam, big event. And this, I mean, the storylines in this tournament were so good. I think for the casual watcher of tennis, 
all the big names were kicked out early. You know, Medvedev was out the door early. Carlos did make it to the quarterfinals, but he was also out. Sinner, who was coming in from winning um, Beijing, also went out early. So I think maybe for the casual fan, they're like, oh, who do I watch? And what are the big names? Everyone's gone. But for me, it was such a great event for the up-and-comers and also people who have proved themselves throughout the season playing well and finally making that breakthrough. Case in point, Hubier catch. He finally did it. He was the champion um, in Shanghai, and he's had a great season, don't you think? Yeah, he has. Um, I think he's had an underrated season, um, to be honest. I mean, I'd say that about um, the, the great thing about all of the people who were taking part, uh, who, who did well in uh, in Shanghai, was they all had really solid seasons, um, actually. Uh, you know yeah. they uh you know they'd uh you know they they got deep runs in different tournaments um her catch had obviously he'd got himself to the cincinnati semi-finals he had a couple of really good matches with alcaraz this year definitely at least one i'm sure there was another one yeah i think they they saw each other in cincinnati and in toronto, toronto yeah and they were both good they were both good matches he, he challenged alcaraz um and her catch may be more well known for being the last person roger federer played in singles um a little bit but um yeah he he's a very very sort of he's one of the nice guys of tennis i would say like nobody has a bad thing to say about her catch as a person there might be some tennis fans who might criticize some technicalities in his game i think everyone was just very happy to see such a nice guy um come good i mean and you say finally this is his second 1000 title of his career it is it is his second 1000 um i think the last Miami 2021. Yes, yes. He won Miami 2021. So yes, his is his second one. But I say finally mostly for his performance from this this year. I think he's been on the cusp so often. He's in sem- been semifinals. He had that match against Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon. So he's always just kind of been there a little bit and not really being able to break that ceiling and actually win an event. And um, I think Shanghai um, was the event for him. He, unfortunately, and this is tennis, you know, someone's got to win. The other finalist um, at Shanghai was Andre Rublev, who had his own major breakthrough earlier this season when he won his first 1,000 um, in uh, Monaco, and he, which is another Masters event. But he, he's always kind of, I call him, you know, he's the prince. He's never, he's never the king. He's always the prince. You know, he has this sort of record of, never winning, um, never getting out of quarterfinals into semis and at Grand Slams. And, you know, he's also a very nice guy on tour person. He has, he does tend to be a little bit volatile on court, um, mostly towards himself, which can be jarring for people to watch. And and this this match was tough as well for him. Like, I think you could tell he definitely really wanted it, um, but couldn't go through. But again, Someone who's had, you know, a great season and got into a second Masters 1000s final this yeah. year. Ribov has this reputation, probably more than any other player, of being very good, but missing that extra step um, to being like the the king of the mountain. You know, he's got a great game. He's got some big wins in his career, but he's... Like more often than not, he will run out of steam against the bigger guys because he'll beat everyone else. Um, yeah. But he 
but he uh, if he runs into someone like uh, well the the current sort of big four on the ATP um yeah he he usually comes up short unless he, unless he pulls off something really special he was probably unfortunate to lose in Shanghai it was a real if you want to see a real roller coaster tennis match that final was it um like Rublev could have won that match he was this close he was i mean i'm realizing really? not on camera but uh, he he was one point away from winning it he could have one more point would have done it and yeah really her catch handled the situation um so so well so it was tough whoever was going to lose it um they both deserved it i think some some other performances just to mention before we move on um to the wta you know we had sort of an all-american quarterfinals in the corda and shelton match corda who is coming back from an injury he sustained at the beginning of the year during the Australian Open, and he's finally back on tour. He's had some great wins here and there. He really, you know, did well in in Shanghai, um, was looking really, really good, and came up against a Ben Shelton who has turned his record around outside of the slams. So Ben Shelton, someone who came on the scene this year, it's his first year as a professional. If you haven't heard of the hanging up, um, celebration. Are you living under a rock? It's so, all over TikTok. I'm sure you've heard about it. <laughs> it's all, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. In slams, he has had some epic performances. He got to the quarterfinals in, in, um, at the Australian Open. He got to, which was his first time out of the country. He's American. And he, um, also got to the quarterfinals of the semis of, um, sort of, of the U.S. Open. Um, and lost to some guy named Novak Djokovic. Um, so there was that. <laughs> but outside of the Grand Slams, he hasn't been able to string together wins. You know, he'll win one and then lose the other. And Shanghai was the first time where I think he finally took that energy from a Grand Slam and brought it into the rest of the tour. And he was doing some phenomenal... I mean, first of all, he's... He's a serve. I don't know. I think serve bot is not really a great term. We want to explain what a serve bot is to our newer newer listeners. What is a serve bot, Nick? Okay, I'm going to explain it. Brilliant. So a serve bot is typically more seen on the men's tour, but they do exist on the women's tour, where it's, it's a nickname given by fans to a player whose biggest strength is their serve. That is the first shot they play um in when they are it's their turn to feed the ball into to start the point um typically it's an overarm motion um and um that some of them can hit the ball so hard i'm thinking on the men's side that it can travel at well over 120 130 miles an hour ben shelton was saying records at the us open for how fast he was able to hit serve and how hard the ball was traveling i think he was in the high in the 140s Miles per hour. Yeah. Almost hitting one. I think his record one. I think one thirty eight was the official record. I think at the U.S. Open. Um, and then he smashed it twice. And I'll, I'll, yeah. And he did it twice. Yeah. It twice. Um, I always wonder what is happening with their shoulders in that moment. I I don't know. It's clearly clearly made of steel. But yeah. But the problem is, is obviously yeah. serve bots in the most extreme sense are. Their biggest weapon is their serve, but, uh, but the rest of their game lacks in comparison. So some people who I know f- would uh, say John Isner is the 
biggest example. Americans may have heard of him. He was mm-hmm. America's top ranked player for a few years. Six foot ten. He had a huge serve and generally hardly, it was pretty much difficult for much anyone to get it back. But his movement wasn't as impressive and the rest of his shots, whilst could beat pretty much anyone else who ever tried, uh, it, like an amateur like you and me, um, easily um, against the very, very best players in the world, again, was lacking. So that's what yeah. a serve bot is. It's someone who relies on their serve to get them points. Correct. And, and that's why I always say it might not be the exact term to use for Shelton, where, yes, he does have an awesome serve. Right now, arguably one of the best on tour, but he also has a game to go along with it. So it, it, it was really great to see um, him play. And to see two Americans play in, I, because I think it hadn't happened for a very long time to have two Americans in a quarterfinals at a Masters event, um, which is one of the bigger events. You just don't see that anymore. And it, I think it was a testament to where the American game is right now, where, you know, definitely had a dip, but is on the way up with a lot of great players on both the ATP and the WTA. So that was a match I just wanted to bring up. And also just to bring up Baby Fed. If you don't know who Baby Fed is, that's Grigor Dimitrov, who also had a great um, tournament in Shanghai. He got to the semifinals. He lost to Rublev. They're best friends. Um, if you go to our Instagram, um, I posted a video of them um, hugging at the net, and they're just the cutest like friendship. Um, it must be tough to play a good friend and someone you have to beat um, on court, but they definitely had a good hug out um, at the net, um, even though Rublev won that match. But yeah, Grigor, Grigor's been playing re- another player this year who kind of turned things around. Um, if you know Grigor, who has been around for a while, he has a one-handed backhand. Everyone called him Baby Fed. He was repped by Nike. And this year, he switched everything around. He switched sponsors. He's now repped by Lacoste. And he has a new coaching team. So I think he's definitely, you know, he's not, I mean, for, t- for tennis players, I think Grigor is 32. So a lot of people think, oh, he's over the hill. Um, but I think he, he still has a lot of good tennis in him, in him. And he's trying to prove that. Yeah, absolutely. I think Dimitrov is, well, he's, he's been his career high of world number three. There's a definite a lot of talent in there. Um, in Dimitrov that's why he was known as baby fed as well as the one-handed backhand you know he 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 could pull off he's able to pull off some really spectacular shots and uh, yeah I like he's I think most of his year has been doing really really well until he comes across one of the top players there's a bit of a theme here with this tournament right when the top when the top players go out early or they don't show up there's a party and uh, everyone's (laughs) fighting to be the most popular guy in the room um and uh yeah i think dimitrov was was one of them actually yeah you know it, it was a win-win-win situation from the shanghai semi-finals you had three out of four with a reputation of being nice guys i'm not saying Corder isn't but we, he doesn't have that rep yet um is what yeah I mean. yeah um yeah dimitrov he, he's got a couple more years of good tennis in him at least uh so i'm, I'm interested to see where it goes like, i i, I want to see him do well i thought he might win the tournament but um, I think Same. he ran out of steam. He was, as they were saying, Dimi, Dimi was looking good. He, yeah. he really looked like he, he could he could go all the way. Um, and based on his head-to-head with Rublev, I really thought he would. But Rublev was playing out of his mind 
or as he um, told Manorino, which um, if I can find this video, I will also post it in our show notes so you can take a look at it. But at the handshake after he had beaten Manorino and I think the, the he bageled him in the final set, he, he went up to the net, he apologized. He was like, I'm so sorry. I'm playing the best ever, which I thought was hilarious. Rublev can be funny. He can be really funny sometimes. He's not, yeah, one of the reasons why we love him. Yes, this is true. That was Shanghai um, for the ATP. And then over the past two weeks, the WTA have been in a few tournaments around Asia um, with a lot of interesting results. Yeah, so I'll give you, we'll give you the headlines uh, for the WTA. So they, they also had a Masters 1000 uh, event in Beijing that finished the week before Who won Shanghai that? final. Um, so the, title, the winner was um, Iga Swiatek, who you may hear her name a lot on this podcast. Not just because she's a former world number one; she's currently second best, uh, ranked number two in the world. Um, she's going to be competing for slams for a few years. She also happens to be my favourite player right now. So there will be a lot of mentions of Iga Swiatek. I can't help it. I just had to apologise and give a warning before every. Thing I ever record but yes uh, Iga Svantec won that tournament I don't think it's worth us going too deep into that because Anastasia and I were on another show where we did talk about it so if you want to check it out go check out that video podcast you can find it on YouTube Apple Podcasts and Spotify and things like that so I just say Iga link Sh- as well yeah Iga Svantec won the tournament that's the headline um, go watch that if you want our in-depth thoughts, if you want to brave us going to full fan mode. Yeah, I know. That was um, definitely a good win for her. I felt like um, she was in in God mode, as they say, where I, you know, after maybe not the best performances for her throughout the U.S. swing, I think she really was coming into Beijing with the point to prove, not really to, you know, I, I, I don't you know, it's Iga. She's she's won four Grand Slams. I don't think she has a point to prove, but there was a level of can she still do it out in the ether? And I think she just wanted to kind of shut that down a bit and and really did play. You know, I think when Iga is in that mind, when you see her in that sort of focused mind space, you can't. It's tough. You got to be. You got to be playing the best of your life ever. And even then, you may not. You may not win. And even you then, you know. may not. And then even then you may not. She's so good. When she's on, she is, she's so good. Um, but yeah, so that was Beijing. And there were some, there was a 500 um, in Zhenzhou. I think that's how you say it. I'm really sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong. And then there was, um, there were two 250s, one in Hong Kong and one in Seoul. So there was a lot going on on the WTA side. Um, a quick mention for Seoul because I did not watch a second of tennis that was happening in Seoul. But the winner was Jess Pagula. I'm going to leave a link to her Instagram post that she posted after she won this event. Uh, Jess Pagula is an American player who's also half Korean. And this was a very important tournament to her. So she actually wanted to play it. I think a lot of people might have felt, why is Jess Pagula playing a 250 in Korea when she could be preparing for the WTA finals, which are coming soon. And it really was sweet and touching. So I will put a link um, in our show notes so that you can take a look at that and, uh, and read it. And, you know, 
I don't think it's not always about the tennis, you know. Sometimes, sometimes there there are bigger reasons out there um, in the world. So I will do that. And then just want to touch on the 215 Hong Kong because the winner is someone I think a lot of people might know. Um, she was the other finalist to the U.S. Open 2021 paired with Emma Raducanu, and that is Leila Annie Fernandez. Whoop, whoop. Won a tournament in Hong Kong. It's her first tournament in so many days. I, I saw this on Twitter. I think it was like it was 500 nearly 600 days, days, I think. She, yeah, she basically hasn't won a, a title since March of 2022. Two? 2022, yeah. 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 You know, I think Layla burst onto the scenes during that U.S. Open. She had a phenomenal run. I still argue that her run to the finals was more impressive than Emma's um, because of the people she beat to get there. And along with Emma, she kind of burst onto the scenes. I think her her ranking shot up, and um, I think she was in the top 20 right away. And it kind of wasn't sustained. Um, She had a very big dip in the rankings and hasn't had the best couple of years on tour. But with this win, it kind of brings her back. First of all, it brings her back into the top 50. And I think it brings back those sort of like winning vibes. You know, she's been doing great in doubles. She has a really great doubles partner in Taylor Townsend. Great win. I think Fernandez is maybe one of those players who turns it on a couple of weeks a year. And then when she does, it's awesome to watch. And she has been a little bit unfortunate with some of the draws she's got as well. But when she's on her tennis box office, she's had some unbelievable battles with Caroline Garcia throughout the year where they've like really gone toe to toe and very similar in this um, run. She had a couple of real battles, one against Mira Andreva early on in the second round. And then the final against Siniakova, that was a real battle between those two. Like she, Siniakova won the first set, went up in the match and then Fernandez comes back, looks in control of the second set. Siniakova then comes back. Fernandez wins a marathon game that helps her get the second set. And then the third was just back and forth yeah. all the way. And then Fernandez was the one who got the crucial last moment. I have to say, actually, all three finals and all the tournaments that happened this week in Zhangzhou and Hong Kong and Seoul were all really good tennis yeah. on display there. Um, I will say that, like, really, really good matches to watch. Especially at this, yeah, especially at the smaller tournaments. Sometimes you don't really get um, great matches, but it, it really was blockbuster this weekend. Yeah. And, and Fernandez looks awesome when she's on. She's whipping up the crowd. I love her game, how she just so digs in and grits it out and kind of counter counters everything her opponent throws at her. Works all the angles. It's just gorgeous to watch. You know, I've mentioned Iga Sviontek um, as my favourite player, but Leila Fernandez is a very, very close second. And uh, I, I'm very happy that she's won a title. She's back in the top 50. And now I'm kind of hoping she's going to get herself um, a seeding for um australia which might be a bit of an effort but you never know um but yeah that's that's kind of where we're at so i think we both really enjoyed that run from layla totally i i love her brand of tennis she does these like little fist pumps like literally after every point she'll do a little fist pump and there's just something about her that brings you in and you know i think like a lot of players that we might have mentioned that are emotional like that that can sort of bring you into the match 
that they're having and you kind of feel all the emotions along with them um she she's definitely one of those um she also happened to play in this same tournament earlier on mira andreva who we talked about during the last episode and she beat her. I mean, Miriam Andreva won the first set. You know, it, she came kind of came out of the gates just hot. And the first set was over before you knew it. And she won it. But Layla was able to sort of fight back and not, you know, I think they, as they say, not play the player, but play the ball and was able to um, um, win that one. Love Mira. Can't wait to see more of her. But I'm really happy um, Layla was able to win. The last tournament that happened was Genju which was one which is the 500 yes which was the 500 and was won by Quinn Wen who is a Chinese player and there is something so fun about a Chinese player winning a 500 level tournament in China I think it was really really great for the fans there also Quinn Wen is a bit of a star isn't she yeah I mean look she's got a big game um she's got a big personality and it, it's been on show. She's had an incredible few weeks. She won gold medal in tennis um, at the Asian Games a, about a month, a few weeks back. And she's really let that momentum carry her on. And she played so well in that final to beat uh, Barbora Krajikova, who is a Grand Slam champion. And that's all you need to know at this point. But like that's that's a high standard to beat. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Zhang is definitely coming on leaps and bounds. And she's still only 21. So I think she's setting herself up for a very exciting season in 2024, potentially. But yeah, with, with if she could pull off this kind of run, um, then she's going to be a contender, which is probably what Chinese tennis has been looking for for a while. Um, they had Li Na about 10 years ago uh, before she retired. And you know they have been looking for their, their biggest star, especially given how much of the tour takes place over there. She's such a great player. I think one thing I really noticed, she has like, I'm obsessed with service motions. I, I The more awkward, the better. And she definitely had a funny service motion, super high ball toss, like the ball, I, super high ball toss. Um, you would not be able to take your eyes off of a back in a versus Jung match. Probably not. Uh, but yeah, so I'm excited to see where she goes. I really hope she can sort of carry this momentum on and have a really great 2024. So that was, and I ha- I can't not mention the karaoke. Have you seen the karaoke video yet from the trophy ceremony? Yes, I am aware of it. I, I haven't watched it, but I have seen it on my feed. Well, I will send you a link and I will also put that same link in the show notes so everyone can watch that um, and enjoy it like I did. And that was the last two weeks of tennis. What is coming up next? Because tennis never stops. <laughs> well, kind of, sort of. And we're actually getting to the point where it's about to stop, actually. True. Um, at least for, go on pause for Christmas. Yeah, we've got a few, I mean, at the minute we're kind of in the, the winding down phase. The tour, the men's tour is moving to Europe to play indoors over there. Although there is a 500 taking place in Tokyo. That's the last Asian event. They're doing tours all over the world because we've got a tournament going on in China. We've got a tournament going on in Romania and a tournament going on in Tunisia. So we've got three continents in a week, which is madness. But reality is, is that we are building up for the season ending events, which actually we did not talk about in our breakdown of different types of events. Because there is another one that we didn't mention, which is the finals. Yes. Um, which both the ATP and the WTA run. And essentially it's this. The top eight ranked players in singles and doubles 
compete against each other in two round-robin groups. So each player plays three times. Best-performing players, they make it to the semi-finals. The winners of the semi-finals get to the final. We can explain exactly how it works nearer the time. But um, we are now in the the kind of qualifying period on the men's tour. The women's side we already know about. So, in about, so when we record our next episode, we will be building up for the WTA finals. Yeah. Um, and we'll go through what's going on there. And another tournament that we didn't mention that kind it's very different. There really isn't an equivalent yet, I think, on the women's side. And that will be the next-gen end-of-year tournament for the men's, which is basically the top-ranked players, 21 years old and under, play that. Yeah. And it's sort of a... It's next-gen, which I'm sure is a phrase you might have heard before. It's the next generation of future top ATP players, or at least that's how it's marketed. And, you know, Sinner has been a next-gen winner. Alcaraz has been a next-gen winner. Um, who I think Sitsipas Runa- has been one. Has Runa won next-gen? Or did he just play? No, he never did. The other winners um, were Chung Hyun, who got injured straight away. Yeah. And then um, uh, last year was Brandon Nakashima, who was probably the first one to really not quite impressed right. after it he's still got time but um he he he's the first one to not really do something super impressive straight away straight away yeah yeah totally so that's another sort of end of year event that happens um that actually goes into december so for the men's side they have the atp finals in turin in italy and this year, and right after that, then they have the next gen, which will be in Saudi Arabia this year in Jeddah. Yeah. So that's what we've got to look forward to coming up. Obviously, that was a lot of information all in one go. Um, not necessarily going to break down super what, what, what's going on. But, you know, if you're in the right time zone, definitely tune in um, to watch um, all of that. Obviously, um, men's indoor tennis is sort of super quick. Lots of um, power involved, like the power hitters are going to come into form. Um, the the women's tour, um, you've got a lot of different stories going on at the same time. Um, and then, uh, but yeah, it's all going to be, we're all building up for the big season finale yeah. uh, coming up. Yeah, very, and very for, soon. you know, on the ATP side, definitely what to be watching for this week um, is the players fighting to qualify for the finals. You know, we have these three tournaments happening, two in Europe, one in in Asia. Only the top four have been picked so far who have qualified um, into the end of year tour. So you have about four or five players who are fighting right now, one of them being Zverev, who unfortunately... Possibly more. Possibly more, because it just just keeps moving. Zverev, who was um, someone looking to get to the end of year finals was just um upset in in tokyo in the first round so he's out so yeah there's some big points on the table as well because you know well we'll get into ranking points probably next week but obviously you're aware sort of the 500 points available for a title that's available in tokyo and then we've got two 500s the following week one in basel in switzerland and one in vienna austria so um, there's going to be at least a couple of guys who can get themselves a nice boost ready to go into the final phase for qualifying, which would be um, an event in Paris-Bessie, which we'll probably talk a little bit more about next episode. Thank you. <laughs>